Well, good morning. If you would open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 27. That's where our lesson will be from this morning. Matthew chapter 27. Before we begin, let's bow before our Lord in prayer. Our Father, we bow before you this morning. We bow in worship, knowing and thankful that thou art God above, that you rule and reign in everything, that we are in your hands to do with as you please. And Father, we beg of you that you would be pleased to show mercy to us today, that you would make this the day where you reach your mighty right arm of power down and reveal your mercy and your grace to your people and the redemption that's had for sinners in our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I beg of you that you send your spirit upon us and enable us to worship. Don't let us just go through the motions of religion, but Father, enable us to worship. Enable me to preach the gospel in the power of thy spirit. Enable your people to hear by that same power of your spirit. That we would see Christ exalted and be given faith to believe him, bow to him, cling to him, claim him as our all in all. And what we pray for ourselves in this hour, Father, we pray for our children's classes that you'd bless in a mighty way, that you'd use this time to plant the seeds of faith in their heart, that you would reveal to them who and what they are, and Father, that you'd cause them to run to Christ. Be with our teachers as they teach, we thank you for them. Ask your continued blessing upon them. And Father, we do pray for those that you brought into the time of trouble and trial. Father, we pray that you would speak peace to the heart, that you would heal, that you'd comfort, that you would deliver as soon as it could be thy will. And Father, in this difficult day in, in, in which we live, it's so dark and full of unbelief, full of false religion. Father, in this dark, dark day, we pray you'd show us your glory, that you'd be pleased to, to bring a revival in the land, and that you'd cause the glory of Christ our Savior to shine out of the darkness. Father, all these things we ask, and we give thanks in that name which is above every name, the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. All right, our lesson... This morning just has one verse because of the importance of the topic that it contains. I've titled the lesson, Are You the King? In verse 11 of Matthew 27, Jesus stood before the governor, before Pilate, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. Now Pilate asked our Lord, Are you the king? And Christ answers, you said it. You said it, buddy. I'm the king. I'm the king of kings. Now that is such a plainly revealed truth in the word of God that it, uh, as uh, Brother Hawker says in his commentaries so often, I don't need to, to swell the pages of this commentary talking about something that's so plainly revealed. 
the Lord Jesus Christ is King of Kings. I want to give you five truths. I'm not trying to prove Christ is King. He's King. Any more than I'm would try to prove that God's the Creator. He's the Creator. But I want to give you five important truths about Christ our King and how they uh, are vital to our salvation. Number one is this. There's no salvation until we submit to and we bow to King Jesus. Now that was the problem with the enemies of our, of our Savior here who were trying to get him and taking him to Pilate, trying to get him to be put to death. Their problem was they refused to submit themselves to his righteousness. They refused to submit themselves to his obedience and give up their, their obedience to the law, give up what they could do to earn their own righteousness. They insisted they're going to establish their own righteousness. So they refuse to submit themselves to the righteousness of Christ. That's the way the Apostle Paul described them. He knew them well. He used to be one of them, didn't he? And that's the way he described them. These men were so proud, they refused to beg Christ for mercy. They refused to beg. I know they refused to beg him because they thought their obedience, their morality, their works, they thought that was, that was good enough. Pride of heart was is the issue here. They refused to beg him for mercy. And the reason they put the Lord to death is because he's the king. What was the charge they thought worthy of death? He said he's king. He says he has a spiritual kingdom. He's no threat to Rome, is he? This is really the charge worthy of death? That he says he's king? To them it was. To them it was worthy of death. This is the charge Pilate rode over his cross and put on top of him. This is the king of the Jews. And the Pharisees said, no, don't write that. Right? He said he's the king of the Jews. Pilate said, well, I've written, I've written. Here's the king of the Jews. And he's dying because they would not have him reign over them. So they put him to death. Now the Pharisees would have been fine. If the Lord was just a healer of the sick, wouldn't he? You know, that could come in pretty handy down the road. You find yourself sick, it'd be pretty handy to have a, a healer right there in town. They would have been fine with the Lord being a miracle worker, performing many different kinds of, of miracles, as long as he came from God and was not God. They, they could have stood that, that. What they couldn't stand is him being God, him being king. They would have been fine with the Lord feeding the hungry. But they were all for that. They'd have been fine with that. They even would have been fine with the Lord being a religious reformer. As long as he incorporated them and their laws and their traditions into his what he was reforming, they'd have been fine with him being a, a reformer. And they would have loved the Lord being an earthly king who would deliver them from Rome. Now, they'd have been, they'd have been real fine with that. You know, because I'm sure they figured then that they would have had power and prestige and, and stuff in, in his reign. But if he could deliver them from Rome, reestablish the kingdom of David, make Israel a world power again, oh, they'd have been fine with that. But they would not bow to Christ as king, spiritual king, king overall. They would not bow to him as the Savior. They would not bow to him as God's promised Messiah. Now, I know I'm talking about the Pharisees here, the enemies of Christ trying to put him to death. But now let's make sure we apply this 
to our hearts. There will never be any salvation until we get this issue settled. Who's king here? I mean, who is it? Am I the king? Am I the one that decides whether or not I'll accept Jesus as, as my personal savior? If I'm the one that can decide to let Jesus into my life and let him have his way in my life, sounds to me like I'm the king. I'm the one that's allowing this to happen, right? Is that, is that true? Or is Christ the king? Is Christ the one who decides whether or not he'll have mercy on my soul? Is mercy his to give and his to withhold at his prerogative? Is Christ the king who holds me in his hand and he'll do with me what he pleases? If he damns me, he'll be right. And if he has mercy on me and saves me, he'll be right. Whatever he does is right. Is Christ the king so that there's nothing I can do to get him to have mercy on me? I can't influence him. I can't kind of earn it part way to, to, you know, to, to influence him to have mercy on me. Is it his sole prerogative, his sole choice, whether to give me mercy or withhold it? Is it his to give? I'll tell you what every believer will do. Eventually, when they hear of Christ the King, they're going to bow. Look at Psalm 18. They're going to bow. They're going to submit themselves to Christ the King. Every believer does. There's no salvation without it. Psalm 18, verse 43. This is Christ speaking, and he says in verse 43, Thou hast delivered me from the strivings of the people, and thou hast made me the head, the king, the ruler of the heathen, a people whom I have not known shall serve me. As soon as they hear of me, they shall obey me. The strangers shall submit themselves unto me. This is what every believer does when the Holy Spirit causes us to hear of Christ. As soon as we hear him, we'll obey him. His, his commandment is to quit your works, quit trusting your works, and trust me. Believe on me. As soon as we hear of Christ, We'll obey, we'll believe him, we'll bow at his feet, we'll be happy to submit ourselves to Christ. We'll be happy to submit ourselves to the will of the king. We'll be happy to submit ourselves to the righteousness of the king. We'll gladly bow at his feet and beg him for mercy. Because he's the only one that has it. A man told Janet one time, heard me preach it a few times, and, and uh, he said, Frank preaches a strong God. Well, if you're going to preach the God of the Bible, that's what you have to do, isn't it? I mean, nobody's going to bow to this sweet little Jesus boy that religion is talking about today. I mean, it sounds like to me you just pat him on the head and, you know, go on your way. You know, pat him on the head, I'll call you if I need you. We'll only bow to a sovereign who has complete and utter control over us. That's the only God that we'll worship. And that's what believers did. That's what those who believed him all through his earthly ministry did. At the Lord's birth, those wise men came seeking him, didn't they? And what did they say? Where's the king? Where is he who's born king of the Jews? I want to know where he is. We've come to worship him. We've come to bow to him. And as our Lord, now that's what happened at his birth. As our Lord was dying, that dying thief looked at the Lord and said, Lord, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? You're a king. You're coming into your kingdom. 
Would you remember me? Now that's worshiping. That man couldn't bow. He nailed to the tree. But he bowed, didn't he? And everybody that bows that way shall be saved. We've got to get this, this issue settled. Who's king? And if Christ is king, we're going to bow to him. And it is my prayer that these, the rest of these points will make us want to bow to Christ. Make us want to bow to him. Bow to him as our king and as our savior. Look at Psalm 24. Here's the second point. Christ our king fights every battle for his people. Psalm 24 is the psalm of the king. It says in verse 7, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? He's the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Now in the days of the old kings, what the people wanted in a king was a king who was valiant. In war, someone who was a valiant uh, warrior and someone who was a, a great general, a leader of the army, so that they would be protected from other countries. You know, other countries would be afraid to attack such a warrior, such a general. They, they felt like they had safety if their king was this great warrior. Well, Christ our king, we've already established he's king. He is the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He defeats all of his enemies and he defeats every enemy of his people. You think about our enemies. Christ our king has defeated the sin of his people. Our sin would damn us, but he put it away by the blood of his sacrifice. Our king has not only defeated sin, he's defeated the sin nature of his people. He gives us a new nature, doesn't he? That old nature, that old nature used to be in control. And here's how you could tell it was in control. You'd hear the gospel and you couldn't believe it. You'd hear the gospel, but you couldn't hear it. You'd hear the gospel and you might even think that makes sense. But you couldn't believe it. You couldn't trust, you couldn't trust your soul to Christ. And then God gives you a new nature. And that nature believes and can't quit believing. That new nature rules in that way. You believe Christ and you can't not believe. Our king has made us willing to bow to him. Our king has no unwilling subjects. We're willing when in the day of his power. He makes us willing to bow to him by the power of his grace. He makes us willing to bow. Our king has defeated the law. The law was against us. But Christ took it out of the way, didn't he? Nailing it to his cross. Our king has even defeated death now these bodies will still die but our king took the sting out of death for his people by dying for them so they'll so they'll die no more they'll never die the second death our king has defeated satan the accuser of the brethren there's no one else had the power to do that christ our savior defeated satan the accuser of the brother brethren and just like the lord promised in the garden at calvary Christ our King crushed Satan's head. He crushed his power. And you know how he took away his power? Satan's the accuser of the brethren. Well, Christ took away his power to accuse because he took sin away. Satan's got nothing to work with. There's nothing he has to accuse because Christ took the sin of his people away. Christ our King 
defeated every enemy. He took away every obstacle so that that would keep his people from coming to God. He took away every one of them. So now, because of the death of Christ, we can come boldly before a throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Every obstacle is removed. I thought about those uh, cities of refuge. Remember, however, so often they, they do it, the priests would go out and they make sure the roads were clear of any obstacle. There weren't any trees down. They make sure the, the signs were not blocked by weeds and trees or not, they hadn't been knocked down or something. That the, the way was plain. It was open and plain, easy to get to the city of refuge. But you know what those priests couldn't do? They couldn't make the manslayer go to the city of refuge. And if he wanted to hide out someplace else, he wanted to hide in the weeds, he wanted to hide in the ditch, he wanted to run to the mountains or something and hide, the priest couldn't make him. Every obstacle is taken away. It's easy to get to, but the priest couldn't make him go to the city of refuge, could he? Our king is so much better. Not only did he remove the obstacles between us and God so that we can come to God, Our king brought us to God. He brings his people to God by his blood. Christ, our king, doesn't just open the way to God and leave it to us. You know, are we going to decide? Am I going to go in or not? You know, the door is open. Am I going to go in or not? Eh, I don't know. No. Our king doesn't leave it up to us because we make the wrong decision. He brings his people to God. Now, what a king. I'm telling you, that's the king I want to bow to. That's the king I want reigning over me. Isn't it you? All right, now look at Zechariah chapter 9. Here's the third thing. Christ our king brings salvation to his people. Zechariah 9 verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He's just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Now, you know, this is a prophecy of when our Savior rode into Jerusalem in this very week that, that we're studying here before he went through this mock trial and he was put to death. But Christ our king, now he's the king. But he didn't come to Jerusalem to set up an earthly kingdom. He came, he brought salvation. How does it say here? Having salvation. Having salvation. He came, he has salvation. He came bringing salvation to his people. Not by setting up an earthly kingdom. Not by getting rid of of Rome. He came to set up a kingdom by suffering and dying for the sin of his people. He came to suffer as the sacrifice of, for the sin of, of the people. Now he reigns over his people. They're his people. He reigns over them. He has complete and utter authority over them. Yet the king gave himself as a sacrifice for his people. So he could bring them salvation. And when Christ our king comes bringing salvation with him. His people are completely saved. Completely. And they're given peace with God. This is a peaceable kingdom. Look at verse 10. Zechariah 9. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace unto the heathen. 
His dominion shall be from sea even to sea, and from river even to the ends of the earth. His dominion is everywhere, and all the people in his dominion, he's going to speak peace to them. They have peace with God through the blood of his cross. I want a king to reign over me that's going to have peace and tranquility, don't you? That's Christ our king. And when Christ our king comes, bringing salvation, he sets his people free. Look at verse 11. As for thee also, by the blood of thy covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit, wherein is no water. God's people are held as as prisoners, prisoners to the law, prisoners to our own sin, prisoners to the darkness of our unbelief. And Christ our King comes and he sets his people free. He just rips the prison doors off off the hinges and his people are free. Now, Zacharias says Christ comes, he brings salvation with him. And when he comes to his people, he's not selling it. He's not offering it. He's not saying, what will you give me for it? He's not, it's not up for sale to the highest bidder. He gives it to his people freely. David said, Psalm 111, verse 9, he sent redemption unto his people. He sent redemption. Now Christ our King didn't suffer and die to put away the sin of his people, to save them, and then leave it up to them to decide, well, am I going to accept this or am I going to reject this? Our King brings salvation to his people. He brings it. He brings it by sending it to them through the preaching of the gospel. And he applies that salvation to the hearts of his people so they can never be lost. He doesn't leave it up to them. Now, they're going to willingly believe him. They're going to willingly bow to him. But he's the one that's going to apply it to their heart. He sent it to them. He sends it to them by the preaching of the gospel. I uh, was reading the other day about, uh, I forget what battle it was in the the Civil War. Um, Bloody, bloody, bloody battle. And there was no really clear-cut winner in in, in that battle. Um, Lee took tremendous losses, but was able to escape back into Virginia. And after that bloody, bloody day, this horrible day of death and suffering, President Lincoln sat down and wrote the Emancipation Proclamation. Now he said, the slaves are free. How many of them in the Deep South went free? Not a one. McClellan wasn't getting the job done. And eventually, President Lincoln called General Grant. He said, putting into this thing. I'm sending you to bring freedom to those people. I'm sending you to bring peace to this country. And Grant went down there, putting into this thing, didn't he? And he brought freedom to those slaves. He brought it to them. Every single time we preach the gospel, we've got a commandment from the captain of our salvation. Take this gospel forth. Declare Christ the Savior to set my people free. They're going to be free when we look to him. He sent it to Aren't you glad this didn't leave it up to you? How many of us just, 
before we ever knew the Lord, before we ever heard the gospel, just merrily going upon our way, never even thought about the Lord. Never even thought about the Savior. Never even thought about the blood. Never even thought about righteousness. <laughs> well, how did you hear? I mean, everybody's got a story. There used to be a thing I'd watch on the news. Everybody's got a story. A guy would throw a dart at the map of the United States and he'd go to that town, find out, sure enough, everybody's got a story. Well, we all have a story about how it is God worked it out where we'd hear the gospel. And it can be different for everybody. But here's the thing that's the same. As soon as we heard, we bowed. And this is what we all have to say. God sent it to me. He sent it to me and gave me a heart to believe it. The king that's got the power and the love and the compassion to do that for the likes of me, to send that gospel to me, to send his son to suffer and die for me, and then to send that gospel to me, give me the heart to believe it, a heart to love it, that's the king I want to bow to, isn't it you? That's who I want king over me. Now look at Hebrews chapter 10. Here's the fourth thing. Christ our king is the successful king. He saved everybody that he came to save and not one of them will be lost. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Now the Lord Jesus, he endured this mock trial. He endured all his suffering and death for the sin of his people. He did it willingly. He gave himself to be made sin for his people. He took the sin of his people into his own precious, sinless body upon the tree and he sacrificed himself. He sacrificed all that he is to suffer and die, to put away the sin of his people, because that's what it took. It took all that suffering, all that blood. It took his death to put away sin. He offered that sacrifice. He didn't offer that sacrifice to you and me, see if we accept it. As he was suffering there on the cross, God turned son out. It's just like uh, on the, the days of old, the day of atonement. That high priest would take the blood. He'd go behind the veil. Business was being done between the priest and God. The people couldn't see him. The priest wasn't taking that blood and offering it to the people. This blood was being offered to God. When God turned the son out, the son, went, the son of God, S-O-N, went behind the veil with his blood, putting it upon the altar. And God accepted that sacrifice. That sacrifice paid the debt of all God's people and put away the debt, the sin of all of God's people by one sacrifice now he did that. You think of what a sacrifice this is. By one sacrifice he put away the sin of his people forever. Now it sure would be a shame if Christ our Savior failed to save some of the folks that he suffered not for. That'd be a shame, wouldn't it? What a shame. Well, it would be a shame, but you never have to worry about that happening. It's never going to happen. When the sacrifice was complete, our Savior rested in the tomb for three days. He rested there to fulfill the scriptures, and then he rose again. He rose again because the sin that put him in the tomb was gone. He put it away by his precious blood. Death could no longer hold him. He paid the debt, and he rose from the grave because sin was gone. 
And after a number of days, some, some time he spent with his disciples, he ascended back on high. Just ascended up in the clouds. The disciples just stood there with his up he went. He went back to glory. And when he got there, the writer to the Hebrews says he sat down. He sat down. He sat down because the work was finished. I started cutting down a uh, holly bush yesterday. We planted it when our daughter Holly was, was little. It's, it's getting out of hand. Time, time to get rid of that thing. So I was told. So I was working on it. Guess who came out there once in a while? You want some water? You want to sit down? You want... And I needed to a few times. And I finally sat down and said, I'm not going back out there anymore. I didn't, I didn't quit because the job was finished. The trunk of it is still there. I sat down because I was so tired I couldn't do anymore. Our Savior didn't sit down because he's tired. He sat down because the job was finished. It was finished. When he cried from the cross, it is finished. He meant it. The job of redemption is done. There's nothing else left to do. And our Savior, you know, when I, well, I would uh, want to sit down and take a little break from working on my little tree there yesterday. I didn't even ask if I'd go sit in Jan's living room on her chair, on her couches, all that thing. I was dirty, I was sweaty. She didn't want me sitting there. Our Savior, I sat down on a, on a bench and on a steps and things, you know. Our Savior didn't go to glory to sit down on a bench somewhere. He sat down on the throne of heaven. He sat down there as king, where he sits to this day ensuring the salvation of his people by working all things together to accomplish the, the redemption of his people. He sat down on the right hand of the Father, where he still sits today, right this very moment, making intercession for his people. And the Father always forgives. The Father always accepts his intercession because our Savior, our King, is pleading his sacrifice for the sin of his people. Now that's the King I want about to, isn't it you? All right, now look back at John 18. Here's the, the fifth thing. Christ our King reigns in a spiritual kingdom. John 18, verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Christ our Savior has a spiritual kingdom. Now it is true, He reigns over all. He reigns over all the earth, over all of His creation. He's king over everything that happens in His creation. Whatever it is that happens in your life today, you can rest assured of this, it was God's will for that to happen. Exactly the way it was. It's according to His will. He reigns over all. The, the, the heart of the hand is in His king, to turn in His hand to turn with us whatever He will. But our king's real business is a spiritual kingdom. And his real business is not the politics of this world. His real business is spiritual. And we better align up our goals with that. <laughs> this needs to be our business too. 
Our job is not to reform the governments and the policies and the actions, the conduct of people in this world. That's not our job. Our job is to preach Christ. It's to call on sinners to bow to Christ and to believe on him. Our job is to preach the gospel so that God's people will worship him and praise him. I know believers hold very strongly. We have some very strongly held beliefs about right and wrong that do come from the word of God. No question about it. But I'm telling you the worst thing organized religion ever did, whether it's true preaching or false religion, the worst thing organized religion has ever done is get involved in politics. Biggest mistake ever made. Because our job is not to govern this world. It's not to tell people how this world ought to be governed. We're members, citizens of a spiritual kingdom. Our job is to preach Christ the King. Hold him up so that sinners will look to him and believe him. Now, I'm really out of time, but I want to give you one more thing. Look back at our text. Matthew 27. Here's Here's the conclusion. Look at this verse again. And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. Now here's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. The Lord Jesus Christ is king because of who he is. He's the son of God. He's king. Now why on earth is the king of kings in human flesh, God almighty in human flesh, standing before this heathen, like this heathen has the right, has the ability, is qualified to judge him. Who's qualified to judge God? I mean, Pilate is, I mean, of all the people that could have been judging our Savior, Pilate's the, the, the weakest person I believe I, I've heard of, you know, from, from the Roman government at that time. Why is God in human flesh standing before this fellow? Very, very soon, all men must stand before the judgment seat of Christ to be judged by him. Why is he allowing this pipsqueak to judge him? <laughs> Let me tell you, because the king is standing in the place of his people. The king has become the sin bearer for his elect. He's been made sin, even though he never committed any sin, so that now he can pay the penalty of sin. We racked up the debt. His citizens, the citizens of his kingdom racked up the debt, And the king is going to go pay it. The king is standing here before this pipsqueak to be judged and condemned because that's what his people deserve. And he's going to suffer it so they never will have to. The king is standing before the bar, not a pilot, of his father's justice. And you know why he's doing that? So you never will have to. So that you can come before a throne of grace not a throne of justice. The king is going to die, so his people will never die. He's going to be the king. I'm going to get the king is going to be condemned so that his people will never be condemned. Now, I don't know about you, but that's the king I want to be my king. That's the king I want to bow to. I want that king to have the responsibility of me, don't you? All right, well, I hope so. Lord bless you.